so yeah, let's let's get into this here. 2001. Okay, so the original novel written by Arthur C. Clarke. Okay, yeah, and that's one thing that I always tend to. I know Arthur C. Clarke. I've as a science fiction writer, but I, you know, that's one thing. Like I think the movie has the more fame maybe than than necessarily the book does. So I think that's one thing that I always overlook too. I forgot. I forget that it originally was a novel first. Well, Kubrick is very notorious for going off book yeah. from things that he adapts. So he's done it a couple of times. He did it with this. He did it with a clockwork orange and he did it with a shining are like the three most notable. Okay. But the original novel by Arthur C. Clarke in 1948 is almost, almost nothing like what this movie is. Okay. It is drastically altered from what was written. And I think this is one of the, a few cases where that really worked okay do you think it get, did he have a hard time then getting it made did like clark object because well, no, or... he got he he's also he i mean he was a smart businessman he he acquired the necessary rights to do that kind of thing when he needed to so when he attacked a, an adaptation he made sure he locked up the legalities of being able to do that so that even if there was a disparage and somebody had a problem with it he basically could do could it, get anyway. it to work. okay yeah i got you and that actually got him into quite a lot of trouble with uh, Stephen King on The Shining. King oh. actually vividly despises <laughs> Kubrick's Ooh, take future, on The Future episode, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But um, yeah, so one of my one of my favorite quotes and what I will check out's gun there for you. Which actually. Um, in the in the only surprisingly enough, there's only a handful of actual interviews with Kubrick on 2001. I mean, they're they're out there, but you can't. It's there's only so. I've I think I've heard like the same five or six a few dozen times, but I can't really find much else. Okay. And um, he's 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 constantly brings up though that his favorite quote is one of the one of the earliest quotes in the novel. Behind every man now alive stands thirty ghosts. For that is the ratio by which the dead outnumber the living, which I think actually huh. impacts Kubrick's entire filmography from that yeah. point on. Yeah, I think it. I think he definitely took a lot away from that. Yeah, especially in in this movie in two thousand one. You know, having seen it uh, again freshly, you know, for this, it, it definitely stresses that you know the past and where where we came from is just as important as where we are now, where we're going, and like you know. We have to make sure we realize that we're, you know, we're, we're where we are now because of where we were. Exactly. The past the past has great influence on the future. Yeah, ab- absolutely, yeah. His first big feature film being Fear and Desire in 53, yeah. like, is not the one that everybody remembers. The big one that kind of really kicked his foot in the door was The Killing. Yeah. And I know a good few people will remember The Killing, but an easier reference point for tapping into that for people, Christopher Nolan, who is a also an avid and vocal stand Stanley Kubrick fan mm-hmm. has it's if you watch the killing in conjunction with the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight's opening sequence and the third act of the killing are extremely similar. Like there is extremely similar. There. Okay, so, and when when would you say? So you would say that that would be his. I would say that that is his first firm foot in the door in 1956. Break out onto the scene, or at least maybe not, at least onto the cinema scene, like in the community of yeah. you know, filmmaking. I mean, he had been kicking around shorts for three or so years before Fear and Desire in 53, but it, f- people started taking notice of him after the killing. After the film, he, okay. He had an early stride with a lot of that stuff uh, and built up to the point where he could you could tell 2001 was like his his target he was trying to hit yeah and everything was like in building up and building up and leading to that platform and by time he got to 2001 he could do anything he wanted to and he had a lot of different ideas of where he wanted to go but he invested a lot of time a lot of effort whenever he made a film he yeah did not half-ass anything so could you say that like 2001 
by the time that came, that was the first time he had the chance to, the first time he had like maybe full control over his project. You know, there's always the stories of newer directors, you know, always having that watchful studio eye, but probably the biggest example, biggest example. Okay. Like that's the one that like just shocked the entire, well, not shocked, but shook the entire industry into, okay, this man is a force. Yeah. 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 A force to be reckoned with. And they, it got to the point where it's, they actually re started re screening 2001, even just a few years after that, because it had such a lasting and long-term impact. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think no one has talked a few times. He recently, just within the last few years, he and his team took up and, got a hold of all the original negatives and all the six track recordings for 2001 and did a full they restored the film and okay. regraded all the negatives cleaned everything up did basically the same process that was done to jaws jaws was kind of like the first big restoration process yeah. Uh, that did a cross analog digital restoration platform and like when you buy a 4k blu-ray or you buy a blu-ray like everyone's like oh well we have modern technology how does that stuff why don't we just have everything i'm like well it's kind of a big deal to like yeah dig out all those negatives yeah 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 and, and, and stuff get up. them yeah it's a process it's all it, in some in some cases like jaws it's as big of an endeavor as producing the movie itself like well yeah to get like so. i mean i assume they would have to like take all the negatives and completely and digitize them which can take a while because it's it's got to go through a specific type of machine i assume to get it yeah. into a digital format and they they rescanned all the originals of jaws i jaws is like my linchpin for restoration processes because it was kind of the first one to really get the process 100 percent right in my opinion yeah but they they did a cross digital analog process so what that means is they both rebathed in the negative to clean out scratches clean out a lot of the impurities but then they rescanned it also and they used simple like i won't simple is a bad word but like very simple photoshop techniques frame by frame to clean out a lot of scratches and impurities they couldn't get in the bays so it's like it's you're kind of getting the best of both worlds and then when they store it they both store it on a server with the full high-res negative digitally, and they actually scan back out into an analog format, which they store in Universal's full big huge uh, warehouse that they have out there <laughs> that they keep everything in. So, so not exactly an instantaneous process. There is not even by the. Least. It is. It sounds time-consuming. Yeah, and what I thought was interesting, any, anybody who's interested in Kubrick should definitely watch this documentary called Film Worker about Leon Vitali. Leon Vitali was not on the scene. For 2001, but he was so fascinated by 2001 that he came drawn to Kubrick and eventually started working with him. He got a job on Barry Lyndon and worked with him on every production following that. Huh. And he actually became what a lot of people regard as the foremost expert on the man. He actually had memorized all the color timing of every print that Kubrick had ever done. He he don't he slept like almost never because he worked so many hours for <laughs> Kubrick. And how that man is still alive is beyond me he's not exactly living a lavish life of luxury he's not you know contacted by the kubrick foundation at least as far as i know yeah because he's i if you watch the documentary you would understand because it seems like he's kind of just like out of a lot of this but he really just knows everything about the man like he's a fascinating figure he was kind of kubrick's right hand for a lot of these projects especially the shining i think was the biggest one he i know i know he was integral to a lot of what went on in, during those years interesting <laughs> that's more power to the man yeah because i know i could i don't have the fortitude to do it that would that would annihilate me <laughs> oh i would have oh yeah i would have i would have taken one look and been like yeah 
Nah. It's like you. That's what. That's the point. You like devote your whole life to somebody yeah. because you respect them that much as an artist. And I can only admire that kind of commitment. <laughs> like, cause I'm. Yeah, that's a, That's basically that old swearing of an oath type deal. Yeah, and uh, he's also. Um, if you've seen Eyes Wide Shut, he is the, the red cloak in the the secret society. Okay, I've only ever seen bits of Eyes Wide Shut. A lot of commentary on secret societies and. Was that his last film? Eyes wide shut. Or? Yeah, he actually it's it's his most contested film too. Okay, because he actually he died before the final edit was. Did he really? Composed. I didn't. Okay. And Kubrick was notorious for changing up the edit in like the final minutes before the the deadline to to distribute. Like huh. he he constantly tinkered and changed. And Leon is actually the one who finished up Eyes Wide Shut for distribution. And not everybody like a lot of people thought it should have been shelved and never released because I mean because. It didn't have that final stamp cool. of approval on it. Yeah, it's it's like a, it was like a half vision. A lot of people felt okay, but it's a, it's a fascinating film nonetheless. I mean, it's it, I get in a lot of ways the two thousand one is it's it's very in, up for interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so yeah. So getting into two thousand one here, give me give me the legacy of this of this film. Um, you know, just as knowing it as much as I do, and which is not that much, but like you know, it's one of those that I know of. I've heard of it. I've watched it. I see you know parodies of it um yeah. even sometimes when i'm not conscientious of it but it certainly is influential on a lot of especially to science fiction i would say you know i think a lot of people would you know put like think science fiction they would probably think like star wars or, or star trek but this this came out in terms of cinema uh before star wars yeah um, and uh largely um i mean THX 1138 george lucas is i guess it's it's more of a short it's not quite it's not quite a feature but it's kind of somewhere in between it's it it has some clear inspiration from that because it's 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 a little more exper- experimental than star wars was star wars was a bit more of an operatic but i think star wars has more op- more gr- more of the grand vision of 2001 yeah and L- lucas has also been slightly vocal that yes 2001 kicked in the door for me and made me want to do this and it's like the two the two immediate obvious ones around the time that 2001 was actually released, I would say are both George Lucas and Ridley Scott. Okay. Ridley Ridley Scott had the dark vision of the future, and, and the two big things that Ridley did that were takeoffs of 2001 in large ways were Alien and Blade Runner. And what a lot of people don't know is Alien and Blade Runner actu- actually were designed to exist in the same universe. Really? So they're kind of the same, at least as I regard them were they, in a lot of ways. So were they supposed to like be like companion pieces to each other? Or like Yes, in a lot at least like not by the Phil K. Dick novel of Blade Runner, which yeah. is where the origins of all that came from and obviously evolved largely. It went through a it, Blade Runner went through a hefty, hefty writing change process from book to screen. Okay, but yeah, Ridley Ridley has has been probably next to Nolan the most vocal about being inspired. He 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 touts his fealty to Kubrick to Kub- every time. <laughs> the Kubra the Kubra maniac. The I'm trying to come up with a yeah. term. <laughs> the the Kubra mania. The Kubra mania. Uh, Planet of the Apes is also it's it a lot of people disparage with that one because they came because it came out in the same year. Okay, as yeah, yeah. Two thousand one. So it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. All right, who thought of it? Who first? thought? Who, who came up with the first? first? Yeah, yeah. So take that one with for what you will. But I do think that Twentieth Century Fox with Planet of the Apes was trying to catch up to MGM's high caliber with two thousand one. Yeah. But Planet of the Apes is a fantastic film and should not be merely sloughed off as living in the shadow. Of oh 2001. yeah. Um, also. 
also like a lot of things. Basically, 2001 kicked in the door for miniature work because yeah. a lot of people didn't think of merging sets with the wide scale in the same way that they did after Kubrick really kicked in that door. Yeah, you know, having having watched that opening again, I have to say it still holds up. And I was like, man, how did they do this in the 60s without any computer technology, at least at least not to the extent that we have today? It was one of the first really like wide cinemascope examples of effective rear screen projection. What rear screen projection is basically you have a white screen that you're projecting into from behind and you're recording from in front. So it's like it's a, like a four-tier process where you have actors lighting projection camera going on all within the same frame and at the time that they did this yeah was made for an incredibly hot and toasty set <laughs> and when you have a bunch of actors in full ape makeup god help you yeah 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 and what would have been so like doing that that was a, a complete shift in like what the normal process would have been on set like if you if this would have been shot like what would have been like the standard then instead the of the way that this would have been executed before this would they would have had to have get had to have gotten on location okay and shot this stuff in and but then you're dealing with shifting daylight yeah 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 when you have these this much stuff to set up at the time it just wasn't even remotely you couldn't even remotely wrap your head around something like that with the tech of the time so kubrick just kind of stepped a foot in and and started doing things a little differently and you have to you have to also think this seems very commonplace now it's like okay yeah we deal with green screen and stuff yeah. on a common basis but this was massively ahead of it at least was like decades ahead of its time at the very least mm -hmm. and it took people years to fully wrap their heads around it and understand exactly what he did yes he changed the game forever yeah a lot of the space visuals too i mean he you have to keep in mind this was in 1968 mm -hmm. he hadn't really seen the earth from space yet yeah no because yeah it's a year before it's a year before the official moon landing yeah and that also draws in a lot of people have the conspiracy theory that he was he was called in by the government to help fake the moon landings yes i've heard <laughs> i've heard this to fake the moon landing and i mean yeah again take that for whatever grains of salt you can because it's as they say kooky talk well i've heard too with that they say it's like it, it would have been easier to actually go to the moon than it would have cost to actually fake it um yeah so that, i just yeah. think that's interesting that it would have been more difficult to fake the moon landing than actually just go to the moon and also you, as you can see i mean K kubrick certainly got some things wrong in his depiction of the earth from 2001 you can't see any of the continents you can't everything is just cloud wisps and this bluish white haze it's just and do you think that was maybe sort of like something he just had to settle with because of the technology at the time he just well, kind of had think to... it was just a, a limited understanding because i mean and again we hadn't seen it and we True. didn't know it for yeah. definitive fact what these things looked like and he the man was playing his best guess yeah yeah and i mean in the same way that blade runner got some things wrong got some, some got a hell of a lot right about the future yeah i mean you got to admire the man for taking the shot and hit, he he while well, he didn't you know necessarily hit the bullseye I, and this is this is the age old question too it's like okay did he actually see that far ahead or did this did this movie gain so much of a pr prolific nature that it actually influenced the future yeah. and guided it more towards because i mean let's face it 2001 accurately predicts the ipad <laughs> as being a thing yeah. so yeah no it does um at least maybe not you know it might not look to what what we would accustom it to yeah but i mean it's still like it still is the same yeah they didn't even it, the home computer wasn't even really thought yeah. of yet i mean this and he's already thinking ahead to ipad like even even the idea tablets. of like you know 
I think even with everything going on now, uh, I can't remember the the first character we see in the future um, who comes up to the space station and he sends out a call to I to talk to his daughter on video. Um, yeah, you know, obviously the call. machine itself, you know, and, and the way that the that is that, more robust. Yeah, and might not look as as what we would see today, but still, but the, the idea, yeah, it. the principle to know that for 1968 to know that like this is where technology is going to go, and like now today it's being used, especially now, you know. Everyone's using it's, it's this commonplace idea. Of, stuff yeah. for us. We don't even think twice about it. Yeah, so that's a good like, point. Like, did it did it influence it a little bit, or was that something that he and the people who worked on it were able to just sort of glean from the data that they had at hand at the time? It's a little bootstrap paradoxy for you. Yeah, the chicken and the egg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then you also got you got Gene Roddenberry with Star Trek. Uh, now, James Cameron hasn't been quite so vocal, but you can see trends in his movies that definitely, like he, at the very least, learned technicals from two, from 2001 because it does a lot of, uh, I mean, Terminator thematically. Oh, yeah. The fear of how, you know, AI taking over. It's like he's just expounding on that idea into a full war front versus it being just a simple confrontation, philosophical differences between man and his creation. Um, Titanic also kind of pushed things forward on the concept of using miniatures different frame rates to shoot miniatures so that they seamlessly intersect with on-set footage to, and that's i mean that's how they really faked it and made it look like you're seeing this giant ship sink into the water surrounded by a ton of people i mean obviously that didn't shoot that optically like yeah but they 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 learned the principles and expounded upon it and really brought that stuff home and then also i mean his work on the abyss i mean again the themes yeah. of contacting a greater intelligence you know reaching beyond man's grasp and seeing an entity for lack of a better explanation because i mean the monolith of 2001 is this designed to be incomprehensible entity it's not it's not spoon-fed to you whether or not it's an evolution of mankind is it it's is it aliens is it, it's it's meant to be this black literally a black box of like fill fill it with what you will like yeah it's almost like that you know i've always taken it as kind of like a, a pandora's box type thing you know yeah you could you could attribute it to, to that right but i'm pretty sure it's it's open to your interpretation and i'm assuming that's what he was going for that that's what I think is so genius. So many people get so many different things out of it. And I've had a lot of conversations with people where I've I've dredged up things I never even thought of. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this, it's like the, the deeper you dig, the more you find. And it's like this never ending cycle of themes and stuff because it really leaves it up to the audience to fill it with what you will. Yeah, which is, I think is interesting because when I was watching it again, that opening sequence, there's not... There is not one piece of dialogue in that opening sequence, you know, the, the for the longest yeah, time. Yeah, the Dawn of Man sequence, it's all just unless you of course you consider, you know, the the primitive man yelling at each other, you know, but they're not really saying anything, or at least not that we can understand. It's largely a commentary on man's grasp with tools because I mean, for all intensive purposes, Hal is a tool, but he transcends being a tool into being an entity. Yeah. And it's it, that is a pivot point in mankind's rule over what he thought he dominated. Over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man kind of re rescinds back into being the childlike figure. It's like we start off being the child who gains an understanding of how to use a tool. And then we grow as a species, and then our tool grows beyond us. Yeah, and it's like the shifting sands of how that all that changes. It's kind of that. It's kind of that that uh, that the creation growing beyond the creator type type thing yeah. a little bit. You could argue like I, I think of like almost like a I don't know if like the themes of like like Frankenstein or something would come into that to play you know yeah big time because it's again you know essentially the creature sort of comes after him then in a way yeah but yeah that was interesting that opening sequence when i just from like if you were trying to market that today as a movie i feel 
especially like a, I don't I don't believe that this movie would ever get made. Well, I just I just find it so interesting because like I said, it, I'm pretty sure as I was watching it, I like checked the time code. I don't think it's until like almost a half hour in that you get a piece of dialogue, and it's pretty much just yeah. a, a a tone set up dialogue. It's just him, the one uh, the character's name. I always forget the character's name. I've already forgotten it. But him coming off the ship onto the space station. That's the first set of dialogue in there. But the rest of it is all pretty much, you know, old school filmmaking, just using images and like, you know, music if you got it. And largely cryptic, too. Yeah. Just, it's real. A lot of it is just there to set a tone and to set an atmosphere. And it, also how mankind withholds from itself. Yeah. Like there, we hold secrets. We keep we compartmentalize. We that nobody know. Like they don't talk about what's going on with the monolith to really anybody. And it's this big, large scale secret. Yeah. And he's like, well, that's all I'm really authorized to say. To say. Yeah. Kind of a lot of a lot of themes kicking back and forth forth about how man is his own worst enemy and he's standing in his own way i think there's a lot to be gained from this movie and it's it's somewhere in between being edutainment Edu- and, yeah. education and entertainment yeah and its influences so what so what other going keeping on with the influences here uh you were talking about the abyss i think that the abyss is one of cameron's more fascinating films it's one of the ones that he definitely loves yeah more than i think a lot of moviegoers have have over the years but i think that it, it sits in a category for me with the thing kind of but it's like contact with another species but like it's not it has a it ends on a hopeful tone which i've always found yeah. fascinating about that movie because 2001 also does and on a on a hopeful tone despite all the creepiness and all the haunting nature of everything that you put through in that movie it really does leave you on a hopeful tone that mankind is headed towards something different or something better and that life will continue on and it's just but it's it, it again and it lives in that incomprehensibility yeah that's meant to challenge you exactly so it, it leaves you with a in a strange existential funk in a way but one that i think does you a service <laughs> yeah and i think you know thinking of the abyss too just like the the technical challenge of making that movie because i know they shot a lot of it underwater um in yeah, like they, a tank they, so it's almost like you figure or, or sometimes you know someone trying it's to also make one of the first big examples of computer effects being utilized in movies yeah. i mean uh what was the first one of that terminator was shortly there after that they did terminator 2 with the same kind of tech but they they were molding it into reflective surfaces yeah 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 so cameron was pushing with ilm pretty heavily on that kind of button and trying to develop that and he he certainly pushed things forward which i've always found interesting because terminator 2 is like one of the hardcore vestiges of an action film using practical effects Mm -hmm. Which is ironic because it's also one of the biggest example, one of the one of the earliest and biggest examples of introducing computer effects. So it's it's this yeah. weird enigma for me. But and like unquestionable, like the the parallels between all th- all three of those that I mentioned to two thousand one. If you're looking for them enough, you'll find them. But I mean, again, up to up to interpretation. Yeah. But. And what other like so any other big name influences still to this day? I would bring up Fincher, but not necessarily specifically in the tone of two thousand one. I I, I, there's a lot of content creators that I attribute to being children of Kubrick who are taking a lot of expounding on his philosophy and way of doing things in different areas. So it's almost like they like chopped him up into pieces and everybody took their share and ran with it yeah. in different directions. Um, one of the one of the big ones that uh, I always come back to is Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson has a way of shooting that is very reminiscent cinematography wise, if nothing else, of Kubrick and just like the creepy symmetry. He like he effectively uses symmetry to unsettle his audience mm-hmm. in a great way, I think. Um, 
David Fincher shoots everything from a behavioral perspective. Like he, sh- he every all his cinematography and all of his editing styles are are a hundred percent centered around the behavior of his actors and his characters, and everything flows out of that and how they behave and their interactions with one another. If you watch, everything is like everything is hands, everything is action, everything is eye lines. Uh, there's like a thousand breakdown videos out there of Fincher's style and how he he really does not have any fat on the meat, so to speak. He really just gets into exactly what's happening and what you need to know in that situation. And Kubrick was very much in that same arena. So again, I, it's, that was kind of the chunk that Fincher took and ran with, I think. So, um, But I think uh, above all the rest and in, in by far the most vocal about it uh would be chris nolan i mean he he directly utilized the centrifuge for inception and what is the the centrifuge for those if you've never seen 2001 or so yeah so the as it sits in 2001 um the large um spinning rings on the on the ship that um david is running around for his um calisthenics his cardio in the morning they actually built that ring into a steel structure that was dis- was motorized to spin the entire set on itself continuously and they had to v- they very carefully choreographed that sequence so he's constantly s- running in the low gravity portion of the centrifuge and he's he's constantly yeah. on the ground the set's really just moving around him as, as he's, he's moving yeah and the camera is just fixed and and built into the top of the centrifuge and just keeps coming past him that just sounds like a like a production nightmare <laughs> to have to go not, through not to mention a liability nightmare could you imagine yeah trying to do that nowadays well i would imagine today would they even like you know unless the director wanted to but i, I imagine most of the time it would just be yeah i mean i can't even imagine the landscape that no one had to fight to get yeah. that <laughs> get that made for inception but uh even the gravity sequence in inception there's a there's another it's a harken back again to 2001 on the ship as he's making his way to the um moon installation uh he has okay. pens floating in in the air and um we also see saito in inception in a very similar position as he's being moved through the hotel and just like a lot of little parallels like that like nolan nolan has heavily expressed his love um and interstellar is is that entire movie is basically a love letter to 2001 i mean it's just a, it's basically just a, a re treading in modern science of this of a lot of the same visual concepts yeah and i think i think the only real main difference is interstellar is more plot driven a little bit more grounded in reality yeah whereas 2001 is really chalked up there to be provocative and m- more like challenging would you say that's yeah accurate oh 100 percent. okay I, I, I mean we're still reeling over it some 50 plus years later it's true yeah so i don't know fact it's 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 a, it's one for the books and uh i don't know as you you said you watched it the other day what 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 were your big takeaways honestly now i, I meant to ask you like um because full disclosure brian lent me his voodoo to watch this <laughs> Oop. <laughs> Sorry, Voodoo. Um, but yeah, uh, having watched it again for the first time in a while, I ha- I couldn't remember that that opening. Just like the first like two minutes, it's just a blank screen and it's just the music. Was that originally there? Was that something that maybe like I didn't know if like I had been watching that was the like, theatrical release. And um, it's uh, and that I think is like so interesting because as I was watching it, I was I'm enjoying it and I'm like, oh man, I can imagine how much better this would be in the actual theatrical setting. So from two perspectives, I've always found that interesting. Yeah. Number one, within the con the thematic context of the movie, it's it's like the darkness of the universe before the Big Bang. Yeah. And the title card sequence is the dawn of the universe. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it 
the planets, the stars, everything, like everything coming into form. So that, that, that also, like, I mean, the whole scope of this movie is all of existence. Yeah. I mean, there is no bigger concept. Yeah. If you to cover in terms of scope, if yeah, if you want to talk scope, I think this is as big as you can get. Yeah. In any story, I mean, at least that and I it's can been think aped of. Before, I mean, uh, Terrence Malick. I'm clearly in. Um, I should have actually written this down, but didn't. Um, Tree of Life Tree of, yeah. is also very, very. It, it comes at a lot of the provocative nature of 2001, I think, and they actually um, used a lot of like the the Stargate sequence they used for 2001. They used cloud tank methodology of so like they would use high values of light blasting through the bottom of an ink tank and then they would spread different chemicals and different compounds in there to create different kinds of visuals and that's how they made the look of the cosmos and that and a lot of those types of shots and the, so but they did so they're basically they just shooting through like a fish version tank? of that same process in uh tree of life and it's i've always been fascinated by both so wait, this cloud tank are they is it essentially like like is it a literal tank that they put it's essentially just a big fish tank and then uh Actually, I, I emulated this process a few years ago, and it's not easy to do at all. Okay, um, you pretty much just get for whatever chemical compound you're trying to create, you really only get one shot to get it right, and if you don't get it right, you're out gallons, yeah, and gallons and gallons of water, and it's just it's it's heartbreaking when you get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so like again, there's it, the I couldn't I can't even begin to fully grasp the widespread influence of this movie because it it, it goes in so many chaotic different directions, and I mean it could, I, you could really make a case for modern filmmaking hinging. Well, yeah, and that's like you said, just getting back to that first opening thing where it's just the blank screen and it's just the rumbling of the music and the sound. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I wonder how if you played this. If this came out today, how long could you go, or how many times, or how often would someone be Before like, people walk out, or yeah, or say, <laughs> hey, the projector's broken, or it's not working, or something, and it's like yeah. that's you know that's the point, and and that's make me you know thought of like this is a movie that I think wants to challenge your patience, especially with the scope of it. You know, it took a long time to get not just where we are now, but where you know, our solar system and where life itself is at this moment. I think that's one of the things it's trying to sort of capture. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong yeah. there. No, no, you're on the money. Um, and I also, I also like the other, the other point I wanted to mention was that the op- that opening sequence of the, of the black operatic section, it's, it's very much like the opening of a play. Yeah. And eyes wide shut, cl- eyes wide shut finishes the same way. And I've, I've always been fascinated by that. It's, it's, I really do think it's a bit of a love letter by Kubrick just to the theatrical experience of theater not just like not filmmaking but actually going to a play no that is that is a and i think that's that's the one thing when you have something like that now was this i think what's still amazing is like i I would imagine he shot all of this in a studio did he a lot of it, yeah. I mean, obviously the centrifuge stuff they built mm-hmm. on a stage. The, uh, all of the all of the interiors for the ship were built on a stage. Um, they did a lot of helicopter photography for both the Stargate sequence and for the opening shots um, in the African desert. Yeah, um, was that were some of those like when the when the monolith uh, shows up? Is that now? I was figuring that was probably on a stage. And I was like admiring that because it still looked really good, but maybe 
maybe I was wrong when I was looking at it. Yeah, still on a stage, and I think that's what makes it so impressive. Yeah, it has that. Is really, really only the la- like the landscape shots that don't even include any of the actors in in suits or anything like that, or the stuff or the stuff that was actually shot live, like actually out on location. It's it's impressive how effective he got that early on with doing that rear projection system because it was so new on the scene but he knew exactly how to light it and make it work yeah. and he only got better with time and the st- and when i first found out that in eyes wide shut almost all of the street sequences were shot rear projection with tom cruise on a treadmill my mind was just like shattered into pieces i was like i i if you hadn't told me that i would never have known it wait what is <laughs> So there's all these long sequences in Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. Tom Cruise walking on sidewalks in downtown New York. Okay. And all of them were shot rear projection with him just standing on a treadmill. Really? He's not even, he's not on the street. And if nobody, like, have to only look. when you're, like, looking very painstakingly at those sequences can you even tell that it's not real. It's very, very tricky to pick it out. But it, it, it shattered my existence when I realized that Kubrick's a madman. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so yeah, going... Sorry. More into, like, the... You know, one thing I thought, even, like, some of the details of, like, you know, what the people are eating um, on the ships when he's docking into the... I assume it's... Is it the moon that he's docking onto? Yeah, so they they leave Earth. He, he leaves Earth, comes up, docks with the first station, yeah. leaves from there, heads to the moon. Yeah. So all of his initial conversations in the the Hilton, as it's as it's labeled all over the walls, he's he's on an interim station there. Then they move to the moon where he's to conduct his investigation. And I, I think too, like on. one thing that really I'm in liked about this, and this is just me, and I, I'm curious again. I'm wondering if like some people would not enjoy it as much as like there is just that sense of atmosphere of just taking you through what it might be like and just the even though the journey seems simple for the character at the time because he's i guess maybe he's used to it going into space but just like that long journey of going from earth to the to the space station then docking to the moon like that's what i think is one of the big fascinating things about it is it makes this grandiose concept for its time of going to space and but they make it so mundane and so casual yeah it's this just this normal day-to-day task for him he's like oh just showing up to the office and this of course still is going you know you know it's when it comes out it's still during you know the cold war and the space race is still again before we had been been on the moon yeah so it's it it only heightened that hunger i think for everybody to want to get there and i mean we had a very different view of what <laughs> by this movie but what 2001 was going to look like technologically but at the same time we weren't completely far off either yeah twists the mind yeah slightly. no it definitely not even not even just in its its grandiose philosophical concepts of what is existence what is mankind that kind of thing what is intelligence <laughs> what constitutes you know sentience one thing and yeah 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 one thing too i always thought is the comparison of the reaction to the monolith composed to in the dawn of man to when is it david i always want to say yeah, yeah. david i always want to call him how but how's the how that's not him <laughs> Because Hal, to me, is the most, is the famous, and he's, you know, he's the AI of it, but that's the one I remember the most out of the whole movie. Yeah. Um, Even though his performance is pretty much just a red dot and then a voice. Which I think is, it's like the the real first example, hardcore of the Kubrick stare, which a lot of people will say, like, okay, there's the image of um, Alex and 
Clockwork Orange with his threatening stare into the camera. Yeah. The first things you see in the movie. And then there's the example in Full Metal Jacket, which is also obvious. But I mean, like, the threatening nature of Hal, I think, is quite unparalleled. Like, I mean, it's just this red dot. Yeah, staring it you almost, down, you know, piercing it, into your soul. Like, it's, it's just deeply unsettling. I've always no thought this, too. Like, it. does it have, again, you know, like, this is open to interpretation. I could be digging too far into this but does it have anything to do with like because i think it's interesting he chose red uh, does that have anything to do with you know the the life cycle of the sun and the lighting like you know how like when the sun goes it, it would change into like what we think would be like a red we call a red giant that's very before then like you know going into supernova and then or you know i mean they are they are their mission is also to head toward jupiter so maybe there is something that, that's just something i've always thought about um again you know i think that's the the great thing of this movie like you've said is you can you can just get stuff from it and really you can really pick at it and you yeah, it's, it's one of the most open to interpretation movies i've ever seen yeah um what I was going to say, though, with, with the monolith is the reaction of primitive man to it, um, to then when you jump forward to them getting it on the, on the moon, looking at it, there is like that, still like a reaction of of caution, but a much more, you know, obviously in, in the Dawn of Man, they're just kind of screaming, yelling, trying to, you know, more frightened. And then in... That's, that's the other big sequence, too, is just showing the fear. There's a whole, like, at least four or five minute long sequence just showing the fear in the uh, the eyes of the apes or surrounding their, their attack yeah. from the, the cheetah. Oh, that's and right. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. The monolith yeah. Comes, comes to them as almost a savior in a way. Yeah. And that's where they're, they're, I, I've heard people take a theological takeaway from it. You know, so it's, it's, it's open to anything you want it to be, really. And there is some things, too, in it, you know, like, there are some times when he makes a cut, you know, even even after that monolith moment on the on the moon base, and then it, it after they've, I guess they start to hear like a... It's when they make physical contact with the monolith, so it's almost like that's a, a lot of people think, believe the monolith to be a form of a test by a higher entity, because it's our entire, like, the, the loose suggestion is as soon as we make physical, as soon as the apes make physical contact with the monolith, we start to gain... Yeah, and then you, you cut... Our intelligence and sophistication. Yeah, because then I, I'm pretty really sure... builds towards the point where we're actually capable of reaching the moon, and then when we make physical contact with the monolith there it's almost like we've completed yeah you could a test it could you could almost even argue like is it the same monolith or is it just a different one and each one is sort of the next marker in the journey you know sort of like a checkpoint yeah that it's like all right you've reached this marker now can you get can you get to the next one and then yeah. you just keep going um and that's essentially what's happening i mean they they find a the, the same energy signature out in jupiter and that's where they're headed it's just like it's a moving thing progressing humanity out into the cosmos yeah so one of the things you know i think think that's a huge open interpretation of this of this film would be its ending yeah it's it's as from the stargate sequence on is just borderline an acid trip yeah. <laughs> to say the least but it's also not without it's not meant to just completely screw with you it does have points that it hits yeah but it's very 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 meant to be take it as you will <laughs> and is it now i've always looked at it as you know again if you use that monolith as a marker or like a checkpoint it's the yeah. next step in evolution for man like and i think you mentioned earlier that it it, there is like a, a bit of a hopeful ending yeah so it's it's almost like hal was unsuccessful in stopping mankind from reaching its goal so our our dark nature our dark natures and using tools our tools are essentially as as i've seen in them to be portrayed by the by the movie to be man's power over others yeah so his his willingness to crush and get his way and again that i think is shown immediately 
in the in the dawn sequence where the apes with the bones yeah. attack the other group, the other tribe, and, and essentially the, the, drive the them off from cut, the water. Yeah, the snap cut from the bone being thrown in the air to what I've heard described, and it's again, this is not ironclad described in the movie, but what I've heard described as a nuclear weapon in the space is what they match cut to. So it's like the okay. simplest weapon known to man to the most grandiose weapon. piece of destruction we can create. I never see I never knew. I always thought that was just maybe one of the just a spaceship, but I I also used to believe it was a satellite installation, yeah. but I've heard by several other breakdowns that it fits the description of the 60s for what what a space-based nuclear weapon would, would look, look like. like. Interesting. So, it's okay, that's again, one it's heavily up to interpretation, yeah. but if that is the intent, it's a fascinating. But yeah, getting back to the Stargate sequence from the technicals of how they did it is also really fascinating because keep in mind we didn't have available what we have today to create the slit scan mm-hmm. view of all of everything coming at Dave's viewpoint from inside the pod and essentially what they did was they ran film in an orbital scan against one another and just kind of recorded that off it's, it was like a weird form of rear projection at an angle doubled over on itself huh. and it's it was a completely analog process because i mean nothing else existed yeah at the yeah time, but just it was they were very simple yet effective techniques like that they had to come up with yeah that... and i mean it, the fact that it still stands today yeah is a testament to how ahead of its time it's yeah how, which how ahead of its time it i mean it's interesting would you even now with the use of computers would even anyone with the majority of people I, even we're cons- still trying to get back to this because yeah. computers have actually kind of gotten us away from the ability to do certain analog things that we, I mean, you inherently just can't do with a computer that aren't, aren't as effective or as cool, mm-hmm. just from <laughs> a practicality standpoint. But, I mean, I, there's still, like, Nolan is a big proponent of using nitrate stock and shooting everything on the day, and the basically, the old, as a lot of people will now say, the old ways of doing things. But, yeah. I mean, there, there's just so many fascinating techniques in that sequence. And it, also, just from a color correction standpoint, they they shot a lot of, they took a lot of those aerial photography plates that they shot and just like cross composited them into all this all these kind of weird chemical baths through the original nitrate stock and just making everything look as in basically incomprehensible as possible to a great effectiveness in my opinion <laughs> it really messes with your head and i also think it's worth noting um the blade runner opens with an eye and the eye the i mean the eye and the stargate sequence is one of the most iconic parts of the movie yeah. um so I, I i i just again i find clear lines of inspiration through not only just science fiction but a lot of different prolific filmmakers that are still working today that have, have really been born out of the chaos of this movie yeah and the stargate sequence is is by far the most provocative part yeah that whole crazy journey and through all like the haunting tone all the terrifying moments the the unsettling nature and tone of a lot of what's going on through that movie it really does leave you in a positive place yeah like it, it leaves you with a sense of hope for where mankind is heading despite all the bad crap <laughs> We're steep. Down. Yeah, or where mankind can go. Because yeah, you, I mean, you would. I mean, you would imagine that the. I believe it's the third. I think it's the third time we see the monolith, right? Or just kind of show up at the very yeah. end. That's that's when you enter into the Stargate. Yeah. <laughs> into the beyond, into the Twilight Zone. There. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's essentially because at the moment it comes, you know, you think it's the last moments of his life in bed. The time, the incomprehensibility of the time scales yeah. 
in that part it's, too are just it's kind of one of those really things where you think you know it, it sets it up to be like okay here's the end of the story and then it's the end of the movie but the story itself you could argue is is far from finished because of the character sort of evolution then again the next step in the journey yeah and i also find it fascinating that they return the star child as it's referred to back to earth so it's like it comes full yeah it does yeah yeah yeah. back to back to where they were yeah a lot of people who are put off by the movie always say what the hell's up with that baby (laughs) that stupid baby and that space baby what's with that but uh if if you're willing to dig in and give it a second and third thought i've also heard a lot of people who have come back to the movie after initially being put off by it, have gotten incrementally more out of it upon further viewings. Yeah, I definitely, having watched it again, I think there was a lot, especially now. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's one you need to revisit every so yeah, often. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I, I was I was fortunate enough to to track down the Nolan team restoration that was put out several years ago, and it I it's it's a nice print of the film. It, it it's it's reverent of what it originally was, and there's a lot of great uh, interviews with Kubrick on on the bonus material and a lot of commentary. I would I would suggest if you're into getting a little bit more out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is definitely one. I think you want to watch for the first time and even if you don't maybe if you don't like it for the first time that's okay even if you never yeah, just like to, it i would say it's one if you hate it too good <laughs> you should be passionate about your hatreds <laughs> be vocal about why you don't like it. um that's what i say so yeah and i i fully anticipate in future episodes we're gonna dig more into kubrick yeah. i want i definitely want to do a, at least one whole episode on the shining because i got a lot to say on yeah that i mean there's so much he's definitely you know like you've mentioned his influence and in, his legacy as you know definitely a figurehead in in the industry of not just cinema but i would say just storytelling you know in general in general yeah, yeah. so a lot of his note-taking processes and the fact that he would he would rewrite a lot on the day and he was he was in, he was a man in constant motion he never stopped he just kept going all the time all the time moving and it's on the on the set of the shining shelley duvall and uh Jack Nicholson said almost every day they would get new pages because he would just rewrite it and send it back. Yeah, yeah. There's and there's you know if we 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 t- we'll have to do one on the Shining because there's a lot of stuff there too that like there, oh there's there's a ton there. Yeah, so stay tuned for that, guys. We'll have to we'll keep these. So yeah, we'll we'll dig into that at a later date. I could go off on that for. We'll keep these coming at you for hours and hours and hours. But go out, watch 2001. Definitely. Let us know what you think if you've already seen it. If you've already seen it, watch it again because you're 100%. Like, there's never going to be a time watching that movie you don't get something out of it, in my opinion. But agreed. All right. Thank you, folks. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care.